Blog Talk Radio. Well, bless the Lord this evening. This is Pastor Winfred Burns of Word Worship and Witness Ministries with the Word on Wednesday. Now, Bible study uh, that we've been going through uh, is entitled Transition to Transformation. It has been a continuous study of the book of 1 Samuel. Months ago, we started uh, this book and did all the background and told everybody what this book was really all about. And since that time, we have been dissecting the book uh, chapter by chapter to understand what it meant to the people back then and what it means to us today. Because God's word is a transformative word. It is a living word. And God is using his word to transform us into the very images of Christ. And so tonight, as we continue, we are in chapter 26. And before we get started and begin to review, we want to do a couple of things. And the first thing we want to do is ask God's presence and his leading and guiding in this uh, in this study tonight. So let's just take time for a word of prayer. Eternal God, our Father, it's in Jesus' name that we come to say thank you. God, you are so good to us, and we bless you. We thank you for health and strength. We thank you for your divine protection. We thank you, O oh God, for your leading and guiding. We thank you that you are a great provider. We thank you for your son Jesus and how you loved us so much that you gave him to us. And we bless you. We thank you, O oh Father, for your spirit. And we ask, O oh God, that you would allow him to lead and guide us through this study tonight. But more than leading and guiding us through the study, we ask that you would breathe on this word and make it alive within us. We ask that you would open up our eyes that we might see, that you would open up our ears that we might hear, that you would give us understanding and wisdom, that you would increase our faith, O oh God, even as we attempt to do and obey your word how we bless you and how we praise you, how we give you the glory. You are our God and our King. And even now in our hearts we bow before you. Now, O oh God, share your word with us and give us the minds to be obedient. In Jesus' name, amen. And for those of you who are with us for the first time and who don't, who have never accepted Christ as your Lord and personal Savior, I just want to tell you that God has given us the gift of Jesus Christ, and he made him to be the sacrifice for our sins. He gave his life for us, that we might be enjoined to the Father, that our sins would be dealt with because we, have a sin, we had a sin penalty. And what we're asking you to do tonight is consider Jesus Consider making Jesus the Lord of your life. If you hear God's voice speaking to you, if there's a craving within your heart for God, 
That's God reaching out to you saying, you know, that he wants you, that he loves you, and you, you want to respond to him by saying, Jesus, come into my life. Forgive me my sins and my iniquities. Lead me and guide you. I accept you. I believe you. You are my Lord and Savior. Now wash me and make me clean. If you are ready to do that and you pray and ask God to come into you, Jesus to come into your heart, he'll come in. But then after that, what we want you to do is we want you to find a Bible-believing church where they can really teach you more about salvation. They can teach you how to walk with God. They can show, open up his word and let his word come alive within you. And you can, you're, once you ask God into your heart, then, uh, you're saved. But then he, what he'll do is he'll begin the process, the process of making you the holy vessel that he has ordained you to be. Will you do that? Will you do that tonight? And if you need to talk to somebody, you can always either hit me up on Periscope or call me on at 929-477-2304, 929-477-2304, and we can talk and we can just really, really help you understand what God has done for you because the object is to of, of this is not just to teach a Bible study, but to advance the kingdom of God, advance the rule and reign of God in the lives of people all over the world. Amen? So last week, um, the uh, topic um, in Chapter 26, the, the, the thought that we, wanted, that we centered around was don't fool with them. And basically what we were saying in that chapter was we were saying, we, we saw in David and Abigail and Nabal that just because a person acts a fool does not give us license to go back and act a fool with them. That's the title, Don't Fool With Them. And the thing that we saw in that chapter was that um, – First of all, the big thing that, that for me was that the way we define well, the way the Bible defines that word fool, and basically when when the Bible talks about a person being a fool, he's not merely talking about they act dumb, they act stupid, they do immature things. What the what the Bible says is that a fool is a morally deficient person. They show signs of moral deficiency in their lives. And when you go through Proverbs and when you go through the, the wisdom books like Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and in, and, and, and in certain instances, the Psalms, um, what you see is you, um, you see that the, uh, the, the word fool plays a, part, a prominent part in it. You'll see the words fool and folly. And basically, what they are talking about is the moral deficiency of an individual. And one of the cornerstone um, uh, passages is the fool says in his heart, there is no God. And so foolish people are people who are void of God. And a fool is a person who is, is, ignores the teachings of God or resists the teachings of God. And after teaching last week, I went back and I kind of looked at myself a little bit, and I said, boy, that's a little fool in you, because there's some of the teachings of God that we don't practice 
as diligently as we should. But um, the other thing that we learned last week was that if we are to uh, please God, then we have to walk and work within God's plan and within God's timing. Thirdly, we learn that revenge and judgment belong to the Lord. Because remember what David was ready to do. David was ready to take revenge on Nabal because Nabal wasn't walking upright. He did not honor God in the way that he conducted his business. He did not honor God in the way that he treated his neighbors. He did not honor God in terms of what God's word said to do. And so here we have this person who was, um, who was, was for all intents and purposes, uh, just, a, just a terrible person. And he had been terrible to David. And so David had just decided, you know what, I'm getting this joker. I'm having enough of him. But then Abigail interceded, this wise woman, and she reminded David of his destiny she reminded David of what the word actually called for him to do. She reminded David of the word that was on his life that God was in the process of fulfilling. And David was able to get a hold of himself and see what the error that he was, was about to make. And so um, that, was, that was last week's teaching. Uh, you can go back on Global Drive, and you can get the teaching if you missed it last week. It was one. I, I had a lot of fun last week, and I, I'm, I know I'm going to have a lot of fun this week also. I know that if you've read this chapter 26, you're going to have some fun. But before we dive into it, I want to make sure we step back away from the chapter and look at the book real good. Remember, the title of this 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 the entire teaching on First Samuel is first is um is transition to transformation. Remember that. So now what we're seeing is, one, we've, we're seeing God transform a nation. Remember that part that we talked about early on, how they were scattered. We're seeing God transform uh, the, uh, the priesthood. You know, Eli is out. We're also, we've also seen some fulfillment earlier of how he continued to wipe out um, uh, Eli's line with the priest of Noah, because they were descendants of Eli. And there's only one, there's, there's one priest that's running with David who is still along, that comes from the line of Eli. And once we get into um, 2 Samuel, uh, we'll see that that priest, or, yeah, in 2 Samuel, we'll see that that priest is gone also. He gets, he gets wiped out. And under Solomon, the word of God will be fully fulfilled. Um, the third thing is that we see them transforming from a group of loose tribes under a theocracy to a group that are, is united under a monarchy, and the monarch is supposed to report directly to God. That's the way that's set up, and God anticipated it. Again, we went through that earlier. And now we're seeing God who has David in the fire, proving him, refining him, as he transforms him from being this shepherd boy to warrior to king. He goes from tending sheep to shepherding the flock of God. He's going to go from 
And he's, he's learning how to do that even right now because, remember, he's leading about 600 people. God starts you off small, and if you're faithful, he continues to add on to you. And that's what's happening with David. As a matter of fact, that's what's happening with this study. We started out very, very small, and slowly but surely, we've been adding on. Now, I see we've got somebody out here on hold. Let me just let me just see if there's a question out there, or if they're just listening in. Let me just see, because uh, I don't get calls that often, but people sitting in. I want to make sure that they. Um, okay, let's see how this works. Seven seven three four six nine six one six three. Is there a question? You can talk. No, it's me. I have no question. Oh, I know who that is. That happens to be my <laughs> wife. Okay, I I didn't recognize the number. But anyway, okay, so I'll mute her back and she can continue to listen. Okay, so anyway, let's get started. And turn in your Bibles, if you will, to chapter 26 of uh, 1 Samuel, and we'll begin. And I'll start reading at verse 1, chapter 26, verse 1. When we left, again, David is now married, um, David is now married uh, um, Abigail, and so now he's got two wives. He has... Ahinoam uh, of Jezreel, and he has Abigail, and that's that's going that's remember that because that's going to be significant later on. Chapter twenty-six, uh, verse one: The Ziphites went to Saul at Gibeah and said, "Is not David hiding on the hill of Hakalah, which faces Jeshimon?" So Saul went down to the desert of Zip with his three thousand chosen men of Israel to search there for David. Saul made his camp beside the roll on the hill of Hakalah facing Jeshimon, but David stayed in the desert. When he saw that Saul had followed him there, he sent out scouts and learned that Saul had definitely arrived. Now, what we've got is, once again, David is still on the run, but he has been, he's running in that area right around uh, Hebron, it's, it's actually south of Hebron, close, close beneath the uh, Dead Sea. And that area is area, an area that was filled with Cabalites. And Cabalites are descendants of, um, of uh, 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 what is it, Caleb. Cabalites are descendants of Caleb. That makes sense, doesn't it? Yeah. But anyway, and when you look at the chronology, you will see that those cities – that are that he's around Carmel, Maon, um, uh, the Ziph. They're all named after descendants of Caleb, and Caleb was from the tribe of Judah, and Caleb was a faithful man. And it bothered me that here was David. Now again, go back to the maps that I told you to make sure that you had around. And if you look, Saul is up in Gibeah. And what David is trying to do is David is trying to stay as far away from Saul as possible. Benjamin and Judah border each other. Their, their, their lands border each other. And what um, at first David was up around Keilah, 
and he was around Gath, which is close to that line, that northern portion of Judah at the northern border that, that sits right alongside of Benjamin's property. But what David does is David says, out of sight, out of mind. So he has traveled all the way as far south as he could and as far um, east as he could to stay away from Saul. But Saul is steady looking to pick a fight. And the Ziphites, uh, who are kin to David, their fellow Judahites, they should be protecting him. But one of the things that, that, that has happened is, remember, the last time anybody offered aid to David, or it looked like they were offering David, uh, aid to David, the priest of Nob, what happened to him? They completely wiped him out. And so the Zippites, even though they're kin to David, and even though they should be trying to protect David, their own kin, the Zippites are saying, we want no part of Saul. And just as they gave him over before, they're ready to rat him out again. And this passage shows where for a second time they rat David out. And Saul takes 3,000 choice warriors, and they come down when he should be fighting the Philistine, they come down looking for David because, again, Saul is bent on keeping that kingdom, and he has heard the word of God. He knows that the kingdom is not going to pass to Jonathan. He knows that there will be no dynasty following him, but yet he is determined. He's determined that he is going to circumvent the word of God. It's his will versus God's will. And so he comes looking for David, and he comes looking in the hill country uh, just outside of um, uh, just outside of, uh, of um, Halkila in the desert of Ziph. Now, let's go to verse 5. Then David sent out and went to the place where Saul had camped. He saw where Saul and Abner, son of Nir, the commander of the army, had lain down. Saul was lying inside the camp with the army encamped around him. David then asked Ahimelech, the Hittite, and Abishai, son of Zeruah, Joab's brother, who will go down into the camp with me to Saul? I'll go with you, said Abishai. So David and Abishai went to the army by night, and there was Saul lying asleep inside the camp with his spear stuck in the ground near his head. Abner and the soldiers were lying around. Abishai said to David, Today God has delivered your enemy into your hands. Now let me pin him to the ground with one thrust of my spear. I won't strike him twice. But David said to Abishai, Don't destroy him. Who can lay a hand on the Lord's anointed, and be guiltless. As surely as the Lord lives, he said, the Lord himself will strike him. Either his time will come and he will die, or he will go into battle and perish. But the Lord forbid that I should lay a hand on the Lord's anointed. Now get the spear and water jug that are near his head, and let's go. So, what we see here is that David, or excuse me, Saul has information on where David is. 
and David has information on where Saul is because he sends the spies out, and then David himself and some of his men come to, come to Saul's camp, and they find Saul laying down asleep. And as they find him laying there, there's a couple of people, uh, there's a person that's with him, Abishai. And I need to tell you who Abishai is. Abishai is, will be known as one of the mighty men, and he is David's nephew. Joab, um, Abishai, and Ashael are all nephews of David. And as we continue to go through the story of David's life, you'll see that each one of these people will play a prominent role in his development and in some cases in, some, in, in his demise. They have a role in it. Uh, we'll get a chance to see. We'll get a chance to see that later. But I wanted to point out Abishai even right now. Abishai sees an opportunity. Abishai sees that this is an opportunity for David to deal with his problem. He says, he, and, and the text tells us that when they crept into the camp, first of all, he volunteered to go with David, which shows his loyalty. Because I mean, again. There's two of them, and they go into the camp. And not only do they go into the camp of 6,000, but the guards are around the king as he sleeps. And they're standing there discussing um, killing Saul. There's, there's a word there. In a minute, in a minute you'll see what's, what's really happening. Okay, so they're making that discussion. And while Abishai is suggesting to Saul, or to, to David, let me kill him. David is saying, no. David says that, Abishai says this is opportunity, but David recognizes this as a test. Because what does he say? He says, you don't put your hands on the Lord's anointed. And that's the key right there, the Lord's anointed. You, and so you're asking the question right now, so why would you call him the Lord's anointed? Well, he is the Lord's anointed. You have to understand what that word means. Um, first of all, when we use the anointed as a verb, uh, anointing means to smear. Um, it also means to set aside. When we use it as a noun, it is a person who as and a noun is person. Yeah, okay, as a noun. Um, it des it's a designated individual or thing that is set aside for God's service. So now let me ask you a question and stir you up a little bit. So if something is set aside for God's service, does it necessarily have to be good? So you hear people all the time talking about, Oh, that man is anointed, and that person is anointed. Um, and generally what we mean is that that person is giving evidence of the power of God in his life as he works for God. That's what we mean when we say an individual is anointed. When we say a thing is anointed, we're saying that thing is set aside for God's use, like the temple was anointed, like the altar is anointed, like vessels were anointed. They were set aside specifically 
for the use of God. So, is David's enemy anointed only because he got the anointing that that he, he the oil was poured on him by Samuel, and when he lost his kingship, did he lose his anointing? Now, early on, we talked about the fact that now because I'm going to mess with some folk now. Early on, we talked about the fact that the spirit of God departed from Saul, so. Is Saul no longer anointed because he does not have the evidence or he does not have the spirit of God and the power that that comes with it in his life anymore? What do you think about that? Let's go a step further. Is the enemy... Is David's enemy anointed? Step further. See, because now it's time. Now you guys have been around me long enough to start answering some questions and start really, really uh, 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 thinking about some things. Is your enemy anointed? Now stop for a second. Remember how we defined anointing. A, an anointed anointing is a person or a thing that has been set aside for God's use. Let me say, let me ask a real preposterous question now. Is the devil anointed? Ooh, I hear silence throughout the land. I'm going to leave that there for a second, okay? I'm going to leave that there for a second. I want you to turn in your Bible to 2 Timothy, um, the second chapter, verse 20. Let me turn over there real quick. And now, I'm, you, I don't care what version you read from because they all say the same thing and, and with slightly different wordings. For this example tonight, I'm going to use the King James Version. Okay? I'm going to use the King James Version. And I know I'm going a little bit slow because as soon as I get through this part right here, I'm going to speed up a little bit more. Ready? 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 20. But in in a great house, there are not only vessels of gold and of silver, but also of wood and of earth, and some to honor, and some to dishonor. If a man therefore purge himself from these, he shall be a vessel unto honor, sanctified, and meet for the master's use, and prepare unto every good work. So what's it got to do with what we're saying? God uses vessels of honor and vessels of dishonor. The devil, your enemy, is being used by God, and they have an anointing, and their anointing is God is using them to, as part of his refining process in your life. 
those people, those things, this test that David is going through, these are all ordained by God. The folks that get on your nerve and that try you every day, ordained by God. They are anointed to do that. That is their designation. Saul's purpose has a purpose in David's life. Saul is the wood that God uses to build a fire, to expose David, and to expose himself to David, and to teach and to train David to get all of that mess that's on him off of him. If Saul is not chasing David all over the place, he never takes the test that he takes with Nabal, and he never gets the reward of Abigail. But God is preparing him for his promise and to walk in his anointing. And so the answer to the question is, is a person anointed? Yeah, but some are anointed for dishonorable things. But us who have been blood washed, blood blood bought, blood washed, and and, and uh, walking with God, we are vessels of honor. That's the difference. And so when they ask the question, "Is this something that God is using here?" and David recognizes more, than he, and he speaks better than he really knows, because he recognizes this person has been placed there by God. And I would be rebelling against God by trying to kill him off, usurp authority, and and take everything for myself. And so I'm not going to make the mistake again that I almost made in chapter 25 by going to kill Nabal. I'm not touching this. That's essentially what he tells him. I'm not touching this. And so he asked the question, who can lay a hand on the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? Now, that word guiltless means to be clean, to be pure, to be free from punishment, to be acquitted, to be pardoned. This word that they, this Hebrew word that they use is a word that is the opposite of righteous. And so essentially what he says, how can I do this and still be righteous? How can I still do this and still be in right standing with God? How can I do this and be a morally upright person? So, David forbids Abishai, but he takes the spear and the water jug. Now, the spear, if you go if you've been reading along with us, every time you look up that's all. Sit up under a tree with his spear. That's all with his spear. Him and his spear. That spear is his symbol, is, is the symbol of power. And that water jug is the symbol of life. He needs that water out in that desert if he is going to continue living. These, this place that, that David is in, it, the, it's, it's, a, it's a desolate place. It's a dry place. There's not a lot of water around there. And he's hiding in a dry place, and Saul is chasing him in a dry place, and David now has his power 
and the life-sustaining water of Saul. He's got him in his hand, and he moves away. But now, one of the things that I want you to see here is we hear the narrator's voice as he retells the story of God. But we don't see the hand of God, and we don't see God saying anything. But God is involved. Remember, the Lord says, when you're in the fire, I'm going to be there. Well, as David is in this fire and undergoing this fiery trial with Saul, God is right there. And not only is he there, but he's in control of the situation, and he is controlling the situation. Because what does it say? The Lord calls them, all the men in the camp, to go into a deep sleep. David and, and Abishai are able to walk throughout the camp because it's the Lord's doing. The Lord is protecting them. You don't think that somebody didn't roll over and just all of a sudden yawn real good and, and they couldn't have saw that David, David and Abishai in there? 6,000 against two, but God calls them to go to sleep. It's the middle of the night. Somebody had to go up. I mean, all these men in there, somebody got to go to the bathroom in the middle of the night. But yet God puts them in a deep sleep, allows David to be tempted and tested in this area, and we see David say, uh-uh, I took this class before, and I know that I am not to touch this guy, but I'm going to let him know that I've been here. So let's go back. Let's go back to the word again. We should be right around verse 12. No. Yeah, 12. 13, rather. No, hang on. Let me, let me read 12. Let me read 12, and then I'll keep going. So David took the spear and water jug near Saul's head, and they left. No one saw or knew about it, nor did anyone wake up. They were all sleeping because the Lord had put them into a deep sleep. Now, I know that the Holy Spirit is talking to a bunch of folk right now because you're wondering, oh, they ain't paying no attention to me. They, they act like they don't see me. Uh, that's the hand of God. That's the hand of God. Remember that. Then David crossed over to the other side and stood on top of the hill some distance away. There was a wide space between them. He called out to the army and to Abner, son of Ner. Aren't you going to answer me, Abner? Abner replied, Who are you? Who calls to the king? David said, You're a man, aren't you? And who is like you in Israel? Why didn't you guard your lord the king? Someone came to destroy you, O Lord the King. What you have done is not good. As surely as the Lord lives, you and your men deserve to die because you did not guard your master, the Lord's anointed. Look around you. Where are the king's spear and water jug that were near his head? Saul recognized David's voice and said, Is that your voice, David, my son? David replied, Yes, it is my, yes, it is my Lord the King. And he added, Why is my Lord pursuing his servant? What have I done, and what wrong am I guilty of? 
Now let my Lord the King listen to his servant's words. If the Lord has incited you against me, then may he accept an offering. If, however, men have done it, may they be cursed before the Lord. They have now driven me from my share in the Lord's inheritance and have said, Go serve other gods. Now do not let my blood fall to the ground far from the presence of the Lord. The king of Israel has come out to look for a flea as one hunts a partridge in the mountains. So David, in this passage, he confronts Abner, and he, and he says, Abner, you are guilty of derelict of duty. Somebody came in, and they could have killed the person that you were supposed to be guarding. And because you have failed in your assignment, you, should, you and your men should be killed. But then he begins to confront Saul, and he asks Saul some questions, and the questions are, okay, so what is this all about? Why are you after me? What have I done? What wrong am I guilty of? And then he proposes a solution. He said, look, if it's the Lord, if I've done something uh, uh, dishonorable, if I've done something that is against the law, then I ought to be able to present an offering unto the Lord and receive forgiveness. Because during this whole ordeal, not one time has Saul offered up a forgiving spirit. Not one time has Saul, Saul told him what he's done wrong. Saul is just has murderous intent because David is the Lord's anointed. Now, look, think about this here. Now, here he is, David, honoring the Lord's anointed, even though the Lord has kicked this guy out, but he still refuses to bring judgment against him. He said, that's, that's not my job. He said, that's the Lord's job. He's going to die. The Lord going to kill him, or he's going to die in battle, or he's just going to die of old age. But he's going to die. His time is coming. But I don't have anything to do with that. I have nothing to do with judgment. I am not his judge. Ooh, that's penetrating into somebody's heart right now because you're asking yourself some questions there. But then he goes on and he says, he says, look, if I've done something wrong, I should be able to to uh, 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 offer a sacrifice and receive the forgiveness of God. That's the law. He said, but if it's me and lying on me, then let the Lord curse him. Again, we would probably say something like, if me and lying on me, bring him out here and we'll settle this right now. But uh, what does David do? David is constantly willing to put the people who are in the wrong who are perhaps accusing him or doing something bad against him, he said, look, I'm not going to render evil for evil. Is that a concept that we see in the New Testament? Because what did it say? Out, what did he say in chapter 24? Out of evildoers comes evil. Uh, one, one, one version will say, out of the wicked comes evil doings. You see, so... David is not going to get himself into a position where he can be labeled an evil person. And I want to tell you that sometimes it, what we do in our 
deficiencies of of being moral of of being moral sometimes what we do is we respond with evil and when we respond with evil it is evidence that evil resides in us when you know one of the things that i have a problem with from time to time i can think of evil thoughts yes i can I can plot some stuff on somebody that does something to me. But what this indicates to me is that I need to be before the Lord, repenting of those evil thoughts, repenting of those evil plans, and asking the Lord to work within me, to do a work in me, to remove that from me. Why is that? Because I want to give forth the sweet word of God. I want to give forth the things that represent God. I want to give forth blessings, not cursings, because that's my purpose on this earth. And what does the word say? You can't get bitter and sweet out of the same fountain. And I want sweet to come out of this fountain. I want life to come out of this fountain. I don't want death to come out of me. Nothing that I want sin to come out of me. I want the righteousness of God to dwell within me and come out of me. And so I can't be a purveyor of evil and a carrier of good. It, it just doesn't work that way. And so what does this point out? This points out a need that we have as Christians. As followers of Christ, remember when when the disciples came back and and the, some, uh, there was a village that wouldn't let them come in and didn't believe in them. And what did they say? They said to Jesus, they said, "Lord, do you want us to call down fire on them?" And what does Jesus say? You don't know what kind of spirit that is. And so what we have to learn is that when we see that spirit advancing within us or on us, that we got to rebuke it, repent of it, and ask God to deal with it for us. Amen? So let's keep going. He says, he says so he's taking this and he's talking to Abner, and he's, he's pleading with, he's, he's, now he's talking to Saul, and he's pleading with Saul trying to say, hey, you know, we've got to put this down because I can't, we don't keep doing like that. And then he says, he says, look at what you've done. And this is where we really recognize the hand of the devil. He says, first of all, you have driven me. You have driven me away from my inheritance. Um, he, says, he, says, he says, and secondly, he said that you have encouraged me to worship other gods. Your behavior towards me has denied me of what God has promised. Your behavior is denying me my share of the inheritance of God. Your behavior is taking me away from the presence of God and into the presence of foreign gods. So you're trying to make me sin by worshiping another God. You're trying to drive me out of the country into the land of the Philistines, into Moab, where they don't worship God. And David is saying, that's not right. Think of what the devil does. Think of what the devil is doing to you now. Because David now identifies this is a test of my faith. 
You trying to make me flunk out. You trying to make me go to war with God. I ain't going to war with God in no way, shape, or form. I'm not rebelling. I'm not going to be disobedient. Just ain't doing it because I love God, and I'm going to be his obedient servant. What's the devil trying to do with you today? What does the Bible say? He comes to steal Heal and destroy. Think about that. What, why is he warring against you? Why is he fighting so hard against you? Because he wants to take away from you what God has for you. And not only that, he wants you to worship another God. And so right now, there are literally millions of Christians, millions of Christians, hundreds and thousands of them in the Chicagoland area who have been driven away by satanic forces from the church. Every time I talk to a pastor, you know the first thing they tell me about? The attendance is down. And I can go off on a rant of why the attendance is down, but the bottom line is, that Satan has conspired in such a way to drive them away from their inheritance, that they're being driven away from the promise and the place of God. They're driven away from their strength. They're driven away from their place of worship. They're having their community divided. Their families torn apart. And when I say the family, I mean the family that comprises the household of faith, being torn apart by satanic attacks. And we're falling for it. And we're falling for it. And not only that, but then we go off to worship on our own. And literally, we stop worshiping God after a while. And then we start making up our own worship. And the next thing you know, some, of, some people that I know have fallen in to worship under false gods. And others that I know have just given up completely, and they, they, they've gotten so mad at God that they don't want to talk, at him, talk to him. And then others have, are worshiping the God of self. They're their own God. This is what bad leadership does. This is what... A person like Saul does to a nation, to a people, causes division, causes us to lose our inheritance, and causes us to go and worship false gods. Oh, my. Oh, my. If that's your situation now and you're no longer connected to the household of faith, you know what I want you to do? I want you to repent right now. And I want you to ask God, lead me to a household of faith where I can be restored into the community of God, where I can be in your presence with other believers, where I can worship you, where I can learn, where I can be healed of the things that that have driven me away from you. Oh, God, I know you just, you know, as I say, I know in your heart right now if you're listening to me, you want God so bad and you want to be around true people of God, but you've been wounded by the church or you've been wounded by some leader or some pastor or someone. There's been some kind of misunderstanding somewhere, but I beg you tonight to get on your knees and talk to God about it. Don't allow yourself to be driven away. Don't lose what God has for you. 
but trust God because God is working in this situation. And maybe you failed the test and couldn't stand the fire. And don't feel bad because let me tell you something. Not only have I failed the test once, I failed it a bunch of times. But God is the God of the second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth, and he'll keep sticking that same book in front of you. And he'll say, here's the lesson again. Take it over. Take it over. Take it over. Because he has something great for you. And I didn't mean to spend a whole lot of time on this, but someone out there needs to hear that tonight. Let's keep going. Um, I am now at verse ooh, verse 21. Then Saul said, I have sinned. Come back, David, my son, because you considered my life precious today. I will not try to harm you again. Surely I have acted like a fool and have erred greatly. Here is the king's spear, David answered. Let one of your young men come over and get it. The Lord rewards every man for his righteousness and faithfulness. The Lord delivered you into my hands today, but I would not lay a hand on the Lord's anointed. As surely as I valued your life today, so may the Lord value my life and deliver me from all trouble. Then Saul said to David, May you be blessed, my son David. You will do great things and surely triumph. So David went on his way. And Saul returned home. That's strange. That is strange. Why, when, Dave, when Saul seems like he is admitting his uh, uh, mistakes, why and is grateful for David's righteous way of life, why does David just say, here, man, take your stuff and go on? And then Saul goes one way, and he goes another. Saul invites David to come back with him. One of the problems that we have in translation is that oftentimes we think a word means something, and we don't really get the nuance of the word. So I want to go back just for a second, and I want us to look at what what. Saul says, and then I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to un unearth a couple of things for you. Then Saul said, I have sinned. Now, it sounds as if Saul is admitting his wrong. But when he says, I have sinned, what that word connotes based on the way it's used is that Saul is saying, there has been a serious breakdown in our personal relationship. That's the sin, and that I'm responsible for the serious breakdown in our personal relationship. Now, stay with me for a second. And then he says, surely I have acted like a fool and have erred greatly. Now, that's the key to everything right there. That word that they use for erred is a word that basically say, it says, I have sinned through ignorance, and my transgressions have been inadvertent. Now, put it all together real quick. He says, there's been a serious breakdown in our relationship because I have made a mistake 
an inadvertent mistake. Does that sound like him owning up to what he has did? Of course it does not. Because from the beginning, he has tried to pin this boy with spears. He has chased him all over the place. He has murdered anybody that is willing to help David. He has just done despicable, willful things. And he's going to come to David and say, I made a mistake, man. Just, you know, hey, I wasn't even trying to make that mistake. This is willful sin. This is transgression. This is against the law. And he's going to come back with that little old Pollyanna uh, 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 excuse. No, man, you a dog. And you've been trying to kill me. And you're going to give me that weak apology? I ain't going nowhere with you. Take your jab and step. That's why David does that, because he realizes that this is not a sincere apology, that this is not repentance, this is not so asking for forgiveness. This is schizophrenic, crazy Saul, and he's the same crazy Saul that tried to kill me before, he's the same crazy Saul that, was, that planned to kill me if he caught me, and he's still that way. And you think I'm going to be crazy and go with him? Oh, no, 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 no. Mm-mm. But there's one key principle that David advances. Here it is right here. Look at verse 23. The Lord rewards every man for his righteousness and faithfulness. That's the key. That's what David wants us to see. And what is that and, and what is he saying? He said, you're gonna reap what you sow. He said, the Lord rewards every man according to his righteousness and faithfulness. And then he comes back, he says, since I valued your life, Saul, let the Lord value mine. Since I have honored your life, let the Lord honor mine and let him deliver me from all my trouble. You see, when you walk according to the way of God, when you walk according to the word and the will of God, guess what you're doing? You are sowing the seeds of righteousness. And the Lord is not one to play with in that area because he has said you don't give evil for evil. But instead he tells us, overcome evil with good. David is practicing that New Testament principle in the Old Testament, because as I keep telling everybody, all the principles of the New Testament come from, most of them anyway, come from the Old Testament. Mm-hmm. When we look over, look, let, let's look at, let's, I'm running out of time, so I've got to go through our key learnings real quick. The first key learning that we got tonight is this. There are vessels that are anointed to do both honorable and dishonorable things. If one is to be a vessel of honor, it requires belonging to God. See, Saul belongs to himself. Saul is a man of flesh. He's self-empowered. It requires belonging to God and walking in the ways of the Lord by the power of God's spirit. That's the first thing. Second thing, look what the scriptures say. Go to 2 Timothy 2.21. Hurry up, hurry up, hurry up. Nevertheless, 
the foundation of God standeth sure, having this seal. The Lord knoweth them that are his, and let everyone that names the name of Christ depart from iniquity. Now, remember I read 2 Timothy 2.20 early on. That's the verse that preceded it. So if we are going to be a vessel of honor, we got to walk away from sin. We can't do that evil for evil thing. We got to walk away from that. Go to, skip, over, skip over to 21. If a man therefore purge himself from these, he shall be a vessel unto honor, sanctified and meet for the master's use, and prepared for every good work. So if we're going to be vessels of honor, first of all, it is the departure from iniquity and following Christ. And secondly, we have to be purged, we have to be cleansed to be vessels of honor. Remember what I was talking about I have to do earlier? I got to get before God and I got to repent. I got to say, hey, God, we have to deal with this mess in me. The second thing that we learn tonight is that when we walk into trials, this is a character development test that God is involved with even when he seems silent and his work invisible. God didn't put you in that fire by yourself. He right there. And he's working things out. He just ain't, hey, look, every time God show up, he don't show up with arrows and riding on clouds and stuff. He just go ahead on do his thing. The third thing, Satan keeps to keep seeks to keep us from our promised inheritance. I went through that really deep. And his goal is to destroy our faith and get us to worship false gods. Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift all of you as wheat. But I pray for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned back, strengthen your brethren. Do you see that? You see, Jesus knew that we would be tempted in this manner, and so now he calls for strength. He, he is, he's prayed for our strength. And when Jesus prays, his prayers are answered. You can make this. Five, repentance requires truth. Repentance requires truth. Repentance requires truth. You see, Saul acted like he was going to repent, but he was just lying, and David knew it. Six, you're going to reap what you sow. Look at Galatians 6, verses 7 through 10. Do not be received. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. Whoever sows to please their flesh, from the flesh will reap destruction. Whoever sows to please the Spirit, from the Spirit will reap eternal life. Meditate over that. I can't explain it to you right now, but it's, it's so self-explanatory. Let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially to those who belong to the family of believers. That's Galatians 6, 7, and 10. Be not weary in well-doing. In due season, you will reap if you faint not. That's King James. Eight, sow righteousness and get God's righteousness. You see, what you are putting in, you're putting in the righteousness that, as they say, the righteousness, your righteousness is as filthy rags before the Lord. If you die to yourself and you do what you can to walk upright, guess what God gives you? If you're following Christ, 
doing the best you can by the power of God's spirit, you put your little righteousness in there and you get the righteousness of God. Because God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Second Corinthians 5.21. Go further. But now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. You know what? I'm not going to rush through this. I'm not going to rush through this. I'll pick this up next week. I'll pick this piece up next week uh, because this is too important. But the bottom line is this. David teaches us that we will reap what we sow. Now, you can walk around here in bitterness and hatred with revenge on your heart and doing all manner of things, and that's what you're going to get back. But if you walk around humbly, submissive, submitting yourself unto the will and way of God, not sowing to your flesh. And when we talk about flesh, we mean not sowing to your own personal will, but instead sowing unto God by the Spirit in the Spirit. That's when you reach the righteousness, because that's what you're sowing. Right living, walking upright before God, doing what God would have us to do, obeying his word, not rendering evil for evil, but rendering good. That's when you reap righteousness. That's when you reach, reap the faithfulness of God. It's one thing for you to be faithful, but oh, God, when he shows up and is faithful unto you. Oh, God, bless the Lord. I'm go, I'll, I'll go into this last piece of teaching uh, in detail. I, I was getting ready to rush through it, but hey, how you doing? I'll go into this uh, last piece next week and finish it off. Um, it is so important that we get this. It is so important to our own personal behavior that we as Christians are morally upright. And that moral uprightness comes through us obeying the word of the Lord in spite of what's happening around us, in spite of it. That's our call. That's, you know, if you suffer with him, you'll reign with him. And sometimes this requires suffering. David's in the wilderness, suffering. We look at these stories and we don't see what's really going on. And my prayer is that the Spirit of God would speak to you on tonight, as always, and teach you individually, as we have attempted to teach collectively, 1 Samuel chapter 26. Let's pray. Father, we thank you and we bless you. We bless you for your word. We bless you for all that you are doing all that you are doing in our lives. Oh, God, teach us to stand the test, and not only stand the test, but pass the test. We're in the fire, but we know when we've been tried in the fire that we're going to come out as pure gold. Oh, thank you, God, for being in the fire with us. In Jesus' name, amen. And let me just leave you with this blessing tonight. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. And that is for you. 
that's for your family, that's your entire household, your community, and all who you come into contact with. God bless you and God keep you. Thank you. This has been Pastor Winfred Burns with the Word on Wednesday, Transition to Transformation. God bless you, and thank you all on Periscope for being with me tonight. See you next week. Be blessed. Bye-bye.